Today we're going to begin a study for the next few weeks of a life of a, a king in the Bible. The king's name is Hezekiah. So there is no book of Hezekiah. So if anybody ever like is messing with you, a pastor messing with you, say, turn to Hezekiah, just don't sit there and smile at him like I'm not going to play that game. The story of Hezekiah is told in lots of different places in scripture. The place we're going to look at is 2 Chronicles 29. So if you have your Bibles, uh, don't be ashamed to use the table of contents. Uh, 2 Chronicles 29, it'll probably even be close to the middle of your Bible. Um, I've asked uh, Harrison Dalton to come up and read uh, 2 Chronicles for us this morning. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, and assembled them in the square on the east, and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful, and have done what was evil in the sight of our Lord our God. They have forsaken him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and turned their backs." They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. Thank you for reading. The story tells of what it means to turn back to God. That really is the theme of the next several weeks of messages. You can hear a passage like this in 2 Chronicles and kind of begin to ask yourself, I mean, what does an ancient king and an ancient culture and ancient rituals, like what does that have to do with 2016? I was thinking of like, so all week long I've been, you know, studying this passage and reading it and rereading it and asking the Lord for something to share this morning. And in the midst of that, like life goes on in 2016. So in the midst of that, I run into a former neighbor who is uh, not much older than I am and has been diagnosed with breast cancer and is just kind of reeling from that. And this week, I've talked with friends who are watching their kids suffer. And, And this week, I talked with another friend who is just a few weeks away from a family wedding and there's all sorts of intense planning there. Then I talked to another friend who is uh, in a position needing a job. And I talked to another person with strained family issues. And and even if if like not those big things that kind of overwhelm us, I mean, the Olympics are on. So 
That, that certainly garners a good amount of attention, I would guess, from those that are in the room. And you may be looking at going off to college, sending a kid off to college. There's a new job to consider. All these things seem like everything that I just mentioned is 2016. And we got this king in Second Chronicles, this ancient king in ancient culture. Sometimes we see a gap there and wonder, and wonder, like, how does that apply to where we live? We, deep down, we have to have this conviction that God hasn't changed. So everything that he said then means something for us now. As a matter of fact, the things that he's chosen to reveal to us, which we have 66 books of that revelation of God to us, everything is important. He knew we would need to hear these words in 2016. They're relevant for us. And and quite frankly, people don't change either. We change in some ways, but in some ways we are the same. Our hearts are often the same. Let's keep that in mind as we go into the life of Hezekiah and we look at some of these episodes. When, When we come to this particular story that Harrison just read, we got to remember something, and that is like nobody lives in a vacuum. No story, even the story like Hezekiah's, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. And, and we know this, right? So when you come to Second Chronicles 29, we know, well, First Chronicles had to come before that. And 28 chapters of Second Chronicles had to come before that. And so we don't have time to dig into every portion of the background. But, but I do want to summarize because I feel like we will better understand all of, of 2 Chronicles 29 if we know at least the general path of what was happening before that. So when you come to First and Second Chronicles, it's focused on one particular people. That's the people of Israel. And basically, you find yourself in First Chronicles on a, on a, and Second Chronicles on a, a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster of kings. So one king will be, you know, awful and wicked. And then there will be signs of promise with another king. And then there will be another king and another king that's wicked. And it seems like you're constantly going up and down, spiritually speaking, with, with the nation of Israel and even politically speaking with the nation of Israel. And, the, and time begins to emerge. So from the, from the time of King David, it's kind of a pinnacle character in scripture and in these books of the Bible, like 300 years come to when we are in Second Chronicles 29. And in those 300 years, it's almost as if the message of Chronicles is, if we could just get back to David. If we could just get back to the time of David, because he was the anointed king. Even in Second Chronicles 29, we didn't read all of it, but I think three or four times David's mentioned. It's like, that's the glory years. If we could just get back to, if we could have another person like a son of David come and rescue us from all this mess. If we could have a time like Solomon, David's son, when like Israel was powerful and... There's prosperity and there's peace. We just get back there and there's like echoes and throughout the whole book, like if we could get back to the time of David, the king before Hezekiah, if you read just a couple chapters before what was read this morning, you read of King Ahaz, which happens to be Hezekiah's dad, who was a total train wreck and really ran the nation into the ground. It seems like he just tried to come up with more ways to walk away from God. So it seems like he, he would look at other nations and their idols and say, oh, if you can't beat them, join them. I'll take some of that. I'll have some of this. And we'll just mix it all together. Just be open-minded about everything. Maybe there's some truth in everything. So we'll grab this, grab that, pull it all together. He was uh, grossly immoral to the point of sacrificing his own sons in the fire 
to appease a, a god. And even if he were like wicked spiritually, it might have been a little bit different story if he could govern somewhat politically, but he couldn't. So he ran the nation into the ground. I mention all that because that, like, that's the backdrop for Second Chronicles 29. Society becomes just permeated with sin. There's this movement away from God, and it isn't just like that small drift. It is a like dead-on sprint away from God. And all that, keep in mind, in Second Chronicles 29, because enter into all that, in, enter into all that mess, Hezekiah. Today, I want us to look at what happens when Hezekiah leads the people of God to come clean with God. What happens? What does that look like? When the people of God come to God and come clean with him. And if that's ever going to happen, I think there's some things we ought to recognize from these scriptures. And one of those things is, if we're going to come clean with God, we need eyes to see that coming clean with God is the most important thing. If this is ever going to happen, we're going to have to have eyes to see that coming clean with God is the most important. And and up there is, if you look at verse 3 of this chapter, what you'll read is in the first year of Hezekiah's reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. House of the Lord is this, you know, symbol, but it's more than a symbol. It's actually where people met with God. And in the the first year of his reign, in the first month, and you go to verse 17, and it says on the first day of the first month, Why all the attention to first and first and first? It's telling us something. Priority to Hezekiah. This whole matter of leading the people back to God. You can can tell a lot by what someone does the first hundred days on their job. Or the first hundred days in office. You tell a lot about their priorities. And here we see Hezekiah saying, what is most important? is that we open access back to the temple where people can meet with God. He opens the doors. He repairs them. And then in the next several verses, he brings in the spiritual leaders, the priests and the Levites, and he gives them a pep talk. This is the king giving, like, the pastors and the priests a pep talk about what it means to get right with God, to turn back to him. Sometimes I think we can take stories like this and we find the morals and the analogies and the spiritual application and we kind of pull those things out and we forget these are real human beings. So if you were a king like Hezekiah coming to the throne, you have, you have problems, you have issues, you have political issues, you've got to secure the throne, you have economic issues because the, the economy's in the tank right now. You have national security issues because around you are multiple borders of people that want to, want to take over your land. There's no United Nations. I mean, you're, you're going to have to fight this out. You've got big things to consider. And despite all of that, and Hezekiah knows that, despite all of that, he makes it a priority to come clean with God. Not appoint a cabinet, not get his close advisors, not establish any precedents. He leans into what it means to be right with God. So do you have that same drive, that same priority to come clean with God? Like a center of all of our life should mean what does it, what does it mean to come clean with him? Where are you with God is always the right 
first question in any scenario. In pain, in pleasure, in struggle, in success, in failure, in jobs, in relationships. Where am I with God? Where am I with Him? I was talking to a friend this week, had lunch, and I was so encouraging. I was so encouraged by him because his family's had a very, very difficult month, and in the midst of a very difficult month, he's been a voice in his family to say, "What is God up to?" And it's not in a pious way, and not in a like holier than thou way. It's just the driving conviction of his heart that God's up to something here. I wonder, do you have that same priority? Do you have that same drive of Hezekiah? Eyes to see that coming clean with God is the most important thing. Let's train our hearts to go there first. But as we read, we discover something else as well. We also need eyes to see filth is filth. It's just interesting. That's the word in verse 5. That's the word that's translated. Others will say pollution or corruption. The ESV uses the word filth and many other translations do as well. So you see that in verse, verse 4. So he brings in the priests and Levites and he says, listen to me. We've got to consecrate ourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord. We've got to carry out the filth from the holy place. No, no pulling punches of what's going on here. As a matter of fact, I hope you still have your Bibles open or your screens on. Look at verse 6. Because it says, that, listen to the description. It says, for our fathers have been unfaithful. I just want you to notice the description. Sometimes we can just run through these words too quickly. But Hezekiah is saying, our fathers have been unfaithful. And they've done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they've forsaken him. And they've turned away their faces. So you're supposed to turn your face toward the Lord in Psalm 27, but they've actually turned their faces from him. And when they turn their face from him, they've turned their back on him. And that's not just like things going on in the heart. Actually, actions follow. So you read verse 7, they shut the doors of the vestibule. And I think sometimes because we live a distance from the, some of those rituals, we don't appreciate all the, the significance of shutting the doors. But there, there isn't access to God apart from this temple. And so when you shut the doors, you're basically saying, God, we don't need you anymore. We don't care about access to you. And then as you read further, they put out the lamps And so notice the picture again. So they take out the lamps and so spiritually they are going dark and they're okay with it. And their fathers quit burning incense and the burning incense was a a picture of a, a pleasing aroma to God. They don't care about what's pleasing to God. And it says also in verse seven, they've They've, they've stopped offering these burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. And burnt offerings are dealing with our human condition as sinners. And they say, well, that doesn't matter. Our sin, that doesn't matter. And what God has to do with it, doesn't matter. When you read these words like unfaithful, we've done evil in your sight. I just ask a, a very blunt question. When was the last time you prayed to the Lord saying, Lord, I've been unfaithful to you? When was the last time? I mean, has it been a year? Been five years? Has it ever happened? Where you have bowed your head and said, Lord, I've done evil in your sight. 
Lord, have mercy because I've, I've turned my back on you. And this is exactly what Hezekiah is doing. He's seeing it. Do we have the, the same eyes to see? I mean, Hezekiah is just naming it all. Do we have the same eyes to see filth as filth? Have we come to the place where our own excuses are eliminated? Where, where cover-ups don't happen because we confess? And we don't just confess to that which has already been discovered, which is always an easy confession to make. But we go deeper than that. Do we see the filth as filth? Are we humbled before God? When's the last time you saw your anger and your bitterness and your resentment as something evil in the sight of the Lord? When, it, when, when is the last time you saw that as filth and not made excuses for it? When's the last time we had a, a glimpse of sexual immorality? And we kind of all, all know that's, yeah, that's the stuff that Christians shouldn't do. But when's the last time we saw all the immoral actions related to sex? The joking, the watching porn, the crossing lines, considering this is okay because like, everybody's doing it, it makes you feel good. What, what, what's the problem? I don't, I don't understand. When's the last time we saw all of that, all the cluster of sins that go along with that, and we recognize this is filth. This is no place in the, in the heart of a, of a believer that's been made holy by God. When's the last time we saw our, our hunger for our name to be recognized and others to like when they hear our name to say that's a person, like that's, a, that's an important person and we have just a, a hunger for that. When's the last time we saw that drive to make sure we're known and everybody knows us? When's the last time we saw that as filth? When's the last time that we saw our relentless pursuit of pleasure and comfort and power over others? It's so dishonoring to God we say, I've been unfaithful. When's the last time we saw the, the times that we seek out refuge and some sort of substance, some alcohol or some drug? And we say, you know, the Lord's supposed to be my refuge, but what I need tonight, if I'm going to numb the pain and go to sleep, what I need tonight is another drink and another and another. When's the last time we saw that, that awful cycle that can play itself out again and again and again and again? When's the last time we saw that? Is filth before the Lord. When's the last time we saw our pride? as something that's unfaithful to the Lord? When's the last time we saw our need to be right as something filthy before the Lord? I was thinking about it because I I know, all right, so I stand here. There's my wife and my two kids. One's in the nursery or in, in preschool care. How often do they see their dad make an idiot or their husband make an idiot of himself only to be right? arguing with a six-year-old only to be right. It just feels good to be right. How many times have I cried out to the Lord saying, that, that is just stupid evil in your sight. When, when, when do we see this? Like, when do we see that our, our own selfishness and our own apathy, and when we, you know, so here we are, boldly I approach the throne, and we are here for you, and we're mumbling. 
Because we're actually, we don't know why we're here. I guess we're here out of, because we had to, someone made us come. Feel like, yeah, it's kind of the Sunday thing to do. When was the last time we recognized our apathy? Or are we dead set on the fact that, yeah, no, no, no problems here. Uh, keep looking at other people. I, I think we're all good here. It's so easy when we're put on the spot. Just begin pointing fingers. And Hezekiah doesn't do any of that. Coming clean with God means we, we, we have eyes to see filth is filth. It's not someone else's fault. It's our own heart drifting or moving away from the Lord. It's interesting. We live in such an information age, and so you can open Facebook or you just uh, watch TV, and TV, you're going to see the clicker run. If, you, if you're watching some sort of news channel, you're going to see the ticker go across right, and it's going to say, this thing, you'll never believe what so-and-so said. And so-and-so, I, I promise you this week, someone's going to say something in North Dakota or Montana that you should be outraged about. You should be, like, angry over you should be mad over it. How could he? How could she? And, and our hearts are just getting kind of worked up into all this outrage. It's an outrage culture. And, and, and we, we feel angry over this and angry over that and angry over, I can't believe they would and I can't believe she would and I can't believe he did. And, and we, we find so much anger. But the question might be here from Second Chronicles is do we have that same level of outrage at our own pride or our own lust or our own selfishness or our own materialism or our own, own anger or our own sarcasm that hurts other people? Or do we have that kind of outrage over that where we say, no, actually, I don't need outrage over that. I've got plenty of other stuff to just get really mad about. Church, I think we need to consider it. I think we need to put up the story of Hezekiah to our face and go, what do I really ought to be, what should I really be most concerned about? What is God showing me? To come clean with God, we have to have eyes to see filth as filth, but we also, we also need a heart the desires a path toward restoration. To come clean with God, we need a heart that desires a path toward restoration. Listen, I, I recognize this word in Hezekiah is like a, it's a hard word. But I promise you, I didn't get excited about preaching it this morning because I had bad news to deliver. It's actually the opposite. I know there's good news. Do we have a heart that's seeking restoration? See, the it's not just bad news that we stand guilty before God and we feel shame because of that. Actually, the good news is that restoration is possible. The good news is that Hezekiah could move a people toward restoration. We should be blown away, not just by bad news, but the good news that restoration is possible. As a matter of fact, when you read 2 Chronicles 29, you read verse 10, there's this heart that moves. Hezekiah says, it's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord. And those are important words in scripture, isn't it? Heart and covenant. There's in my heart, I want, I want to move toward the Lord. I want a, a covenant relationship. I want to renew that covenant with him. Restoration means we go to God and we deal with real life stuff. And although our culture has very different rituals than the rest of Second Chronicles 29, which I hope you take time to read maybe this afternoon, because I really think you'll benefit from reading it. The rituals are different, but, but appreciate the beauty of these rituals. Because in verse 15 through 17, there are people that haul junk out of the temple. 
They haul the filth out. And as a matter of fact, if you look in verse 12 to 14, they're actually named. Who did it? They're, they are named. Why? Why names? Why do those names matter? It's the only time they're mentioned in the Bible. Why mention those names? It's because names matter to God. And it's as if, if that were being written today in, in 2016... Imagine the story of August 7th where, where it said, this man, this person, this woman, this student, this teenager came clean with God. Imagine your name being written as the one who dealt, I quit pretending with God and actually dealt with what's going on in the heart. They trot things out. This is more than just a parable. Objects that were formerly used in worship but had been desecrated are now consecrated in verse 18 to 20. And then there's this series of offerings that are are talked about in 20 to 24. And again, we don't have time to read it. But basically, it's a beautiful, bloody mess. As we hear offerings, we may think of like pass the plate. And they thought of knives and animals and blood. And there was all sorts of blood flowing because without the shedding of blood... There's no forgiveness. There's no remission of sin. So you can imagine Jerusalem in those days was just an absolute bloody mess because atonement was being made. And every time that, that Israelite had to walk around the blood or every time they saw the smoke rising, they would know we're coming clean with God. We're being restored. We're not sitting under his wrath, a kind of multi-generational impact of his wrath, but we're coming clean with God. Things are being made right. And in the midst of this, there's this thread of something else going on in the heart. I mean, so that's what Hezekiah says. It's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord. And and then you read uh, of singing and instruments in 27 and worship in verse 28, bowing 29, praising in verse 30, gladness in verse 30, a willing heart, an upright heart in verse 34, rejoicing in verse 36 and kind of interlaced with all this. It's no gloomy occasion. Interlaced with all this is confession that's leading to worship. They're not playing games with some pagan little G-O-D just trying to like tip their hat saying hey are we good with the gods we good now but their hearts are being open to worship their creator they're coming clean with them all this is like turning a new page they couldn't change the past you can't change the past either Hezekiah couldn't change his family heritage you can't change yours either but there are new mercies for today. And there's, there's something amazing as, as they come clean with God. That's wonderful in Hezekiah's time. What does that mean for us? I think in some ways it starts out the very same. I mean, it's that heart. It's always about the heart, isn't it? That's why we ought to pray like, Lord, take this heart of stone and just where I, I don't even feel anything towards you and replace it with a heart of flesh. So I begin to desire and hunger for you. But then, because we live this side of Jesus Christ, some things have changed drastically from what we read in 2 Chronicles 29. Sin is dealt with differently because Jesus has come. As a matter of fact, the first time that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, looked at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Remember what he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's no longer going to be the temple and sacrifices and bulls and goats and their bloodshed. He says, I see a lamb and it's 
It's human flesh. It's Jesus Christ. It's because Hebrews 10 says it's impossible for the blood of the blood of, of bulls and goats from an eternal perspective. It's impossible for those to take away sin. But, but look at Hebrews 9. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, even then through a greater and more perfect tent, not this like temple in Jerusalem, but something in, in heaven, not made with hands, not of this creation, Jesus, verse 12, entered once for all into those holy places. This sounds different than Hezekiah. So Jesus is entering in as the priest, but also the sacrifice. Because he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of what? What does it say? His own blood. And he secured an eternal redemption. You know, if blood of goats and bulls could get the job done, like sanctifying for the purification of the flesh, That could be a temporary help for the worshipers in Hezekiah's time. Then verse 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God sees what Jesus has done as something eternal, eternally making sinners right in God's sight. John picks up on this theme in 1 John. 1 John 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, well, raise your hands, that's me. He's talking to me now. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So not only do we have an advocate, but we have the propitiation, the sacrifice, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 1 9, this is, this is good news for us, church. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word cleanse is important because that was such a big theme in 2 Chronicles 29. They needed cleansing before a holy God. They needed cleansing, so they went through all these rituals. But the rituals are gone, the shadow is gone, and now the substance has come. And that's Jesus Christ. And he's the one that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So why 1 John 1, 7 would say it like this. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus makes all the difference. We can be clean before God, not because of our own effort, but because of what Jesus has done. That makes such a difference. I'm going to go back. Now, now we kind of... So some things are very similar in our day, in Hezekiah's day. Some things are different, like Jesus coming instead of the, the blood of bulls and goats. And then we come back to the response that the people of Hezekiah had, and they said, that should be our response, one of singing and praise and gladness and worship and rejoicing. We sang it a moment ago, right? Oh, praise the one who made an end to all our sin. This is the art of celebration, knowing we're free from condemnation. In Christ, we've turned our new page. Can't erase the past. We have a new beginning. God's righteous anger is not directed at us any longer. Joy has come. That's why I love the way the chapter ends. So if you skip to the end of the chapter, you'll read this in verse 35. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings and drink offerings for the burnt offerings. In service of the Lord, house of the Lord was restored. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced. Notice these words carefully, all right? Because God had provided for the people. 
I love where the attention goes here. And the thing came about suddenly. In the midst of us turning back to God, it's like this picture that I want seared on your heart. And that is that the father is looking for the prodigal to come home. God was ready for his people to come back to him. God's not interested in sentencing you to five months probation, hoping you'll behave yourself, keep yourself clean, and then we might talk about forgiveness. God's not interested in that this morning. God's interested in welcoming you home. This is what God's provided. God has moved toward us. We sang about it. You came down to find us, led us out of death. To you alone belongs the highest praise. He came down to find us. He came down to find you. He came down to find you this morning. It's time to come clean with him. I'm always up for a a good documentary taking me to a story or or something that I'm not familiar with. But but there's some documentaries that you watch and you're entertained and informed. And then there's some documentaries that when you get done watching them, you're not just entertained and informed. Like you're, you're chewing on it. You're asking yourself these questions. I mean, you're, you're living in like, I wonder what I would have done. I wonder what the best thing, I, I wonder if this had been different. Sometimes documentaries have a way of making us look in our own soul. And what I don't want us to do is read Second Chronicles 29 and kind of just take the information and say, oh, I, saw, I didn't see the connections, but I see them now. I want us to feel the press of a God who says, come clean. Come clean. I want you to see the the God who just opens wide the way of restoration. It may be that you feel, even as I talk, there's some nagging shame or fear or guilt. And and whenever we like we get exposed, there's times where I just want to get out of that. I want to just whatever quickly I can I, I don't like to feel guilty, I don't like to feel shame. Whatever, however I can just wiggle out of that as quick as I can and not have to feel that. There's a different way here. It's to take that shame and that guilt and say, this is who I am before you. But Christ died for sins like these. We can take it to the Lord. God sees and God knows. So what will we do? What will be your path to restoration, your path to coming clean with God this morning, your path to eliminating excuses, your path to ending the pretend game that maybe even your parents are fooled, Maybe your friends are fooled. Maybe your pastor's fooled and God's not. What will be the path to restoration? And maybe you say, Curtis, please tell me because I, I really don't know what it would be. I think the first thing will be you talking to God. You talking to God. You may have been brought up in a religious tradition, maybe where you even had someone talk to you for God. You kind of told them what you wanted God to hear, but you felt like you couldn't talk to God. And said, Jesus is our priest. Talk to him this morning. Maybe your words for the first time in a long time are, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I confess my unfaithfulness to you. Talk to him. He welcomes those prayers. I think that that's a start. I, I don't know that that's enough. Because I think I, I, can, I can pretend like I, I can handle this on my own. I, I can get right. Like I'll, I'll, I'll pray my prayer, Curtis, and 
we'll, we'll be good. God and I will be good. I'll feel better. I'll confess my sin. You know, sin grows really well in the dark. But when you bring it to light, it has a way of dying pretty quickly. Can I, can I challenge you to invite others who will hold you accountable, others that love you, others that love God, that can hold you accountable? For some, I, I think that's going to mean a conversation after church, maybe setting up an appointment. I, just, I would just beg you not to let that linger. I don't, I don't trust my own soul. Just like keep myself straight. I need other godly influences helping me see the path before, helping me see reality as it should be. So even this week, I've had people helpfully give input in my, my life and helpfully say, is this right? Is this motive right? Is this attitude right? Helpfully process that. Even that. Curtis, I don't know who I'd talk to. Well, my goodness, I'm glad to have that conversation. Maybe we have it today. Maybe we set up a time to talk later this week, next week. Maybe you talk with another pastor, maybe another spiritual friend. If we're serious about coming clean with God, I think that's the step we've got to take. And I think what, what falls in line after that is a whole new set of actions, a new course of life. Today, I mean, what must look different for you to come clean with God? What has to look different? What actions do you need God's help with? Imagine with me an entire congregation. On a given Sunday, there's 600 to 700 people here. Imagine all of us one Sunday coming together with a hunger to be right with God. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine a place, a, a church where, you know, everybody comes in with nothing to prove and nothing to hide. Because we know there's a God who we can come clean with. We know we've got brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine what it's like the first note a congregation, an entire congregation of people sing filled with gratitude because they have been forgiven and cleansed. And we begin living like the ones who have been forgiven much. I think, I think right now maybe the most helpful thing is just to quiet our hearts before the Lord. We're going to sing in a moment a prayer that says, I need you, Jesus, to come to my rescue. We're going to sing that in a moment. But for now, can, can I encourage you to talk to God? I encourage you to bow your head. Maybe that gives you some privacy that you need. Don't wallow in guilt today. Don't wallow in shame. That's not the point of this message. Go to Christ. Pray, Lord, have mercy. Lord, I confess. Lord, I need your help. Speak because I'm listening. Lord, we need you to come to our rescue today. For those that, those of us who have felt the weight of sin, I pray for every one look we take at our sin, we take a hundred looks at Jesus Christ, who made an end to all of it. Give hope where there is years of discouragement. Give life and grace where there's pain. Give humility where there's been stubbornness. 
today, may, may your church come clean with you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.